In just a few weeks, we'll be gathering as a North American Baptist family of churches for our first ever virtual triennial on July 9th through July 11th. The COVID pandemic has caused us to adjust in many ways. With the uncertainty of travel guidelines, it was decided to move the triennial online. As much as we grieve that we can't come together personally, having a virtual triennial has given us some unique possibilities. It will give every member of the NAB family the opportunity to attend the triennial. There will also be no cost to those who register for this event. The 2021 virtual triennial will consist of many of the same elements that we find at a regular triennial. There will be sessions with awesome speakers, worship, great videos, breakout presentations, and even virtual booths. The theme of the 2021 virtual triennial is reimagining hospitality. The Christian practice of hospitality was central to the life and the teaching of Jesus and to his earliest followers. Hospitality is creating spaces in our lives where others are welcome. It is to be a friend to those who are like us and to those who are unlike us. Hospitality is to be attentive to the needs of others before and beyond our own agenda, before and beyond our own needs and desires. The theme of hospitality challenges us to not be just a gracious and grateful host, but also a gracious and grateful guest. In hospitality, the lines between giving and receiving are blurred. Hospitality is lived out in giving love and giving attention to others, regardless if we are the host or the guest. So come join us at the 2021 Triennial. Be challenged to reimagine hospitality as a people of God whose identity is reimagined, reformed, and recreated by God and Jesus. Register for the 2021 Triennial through the North American Baptist website. Make sure you take advantage of this great opportunity. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. In Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17, this is the word of the Lord. So let us never forget that God is our deliverer and our help. Good morning. My name is Garrett. I'm the youth pastor here, and up helping me with announcements is Dylan. And uh, yeah, so there's a couple things going on. First off, next Sunday, I know you're all super excited. Uh, we're opening uh, without any capacity limits. Um, there will be a social distancing section for those who are slightly less comfortable at this time, and uh, so we'll accommodate those. Um, as you saw, we had the triennial promotional video. I think it said everything I need. I, I would have thought to say. So, uh, yeah, get on that. It's completely free. Um, super exciting. Looking forward to that. 
Uh, last night, we had our celebration for the grads. Uh, congratulations, grads of 2021 uh, for, for grade 12. We had Ben, Janessa, Karen, Kim, and Sky, and almost uh, all of our grads were able to be there last night, and it was, a, it was an awesome time. Congratulations, guys. And uh, for grade six, graduating, we have Benedicta, Dominion, and Hannah. We'll be seeing you guys in our youth program coming up. Uh, we have a bridal shower coming up. That's <laughs> not sanitary. We got a bridal shower coming up for uh, Lana on July 7th at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, you can bring a date night themed gift. Um, or if you want to contribute to a group gift, you can contact Susan uh, for more details. Or if you have any awesome ideas, you can contact uh, Jenea or Wendy. And uh, if you want to register, you can go on Eventbrite or contact the office. And uh, that's it for announcements. Uh, allow me to pray for the rest of our service and we'll get things moving. God, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are our deliverer. God, I hope that we recognize that we need you in all things. God, as we uh, hear from your word this morning, as we hear from uh, Rod's Kingdom Kids time and, and Mark as he preaches, God, that we would be transformed, God, that you would soften our hearts and uh, make us new. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. At this time, the kids can be dismissed. If you'd like to make your way out the back, parents, you can take your kids to the fellowship hall uh, for their kids time. Uh, for the rest of us, those here, those who are joining us at home, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Uh, and we come this morning to a passage that I will admit, of all the passages I was looking at in the book of Acts, I was not looking forward to preaching on this one. Uh, and you'll see it when I read it, because it's a passage where death comes to the church. And we're going to begin reading uh, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, uh, we're going to end up all the way in chapter 5, verse 11. So if you'd like to follow along with me, uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived 
this deed in your heart, that you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard those words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that great power, great grace, and great fear would be among us today as we, as we look at your word. And Lord, we just pray that as we look at holiness, um, we just pray that this would be a chance for you to examine our hearts. Uh, Lord, even as the words are spoken, we pray that your spirit would be moving among us, um, just guiding us into not just the truth of the word, but the truth of our own hearts. And Lord, if there's things there that we need to deal with, that Lord, we would deal with them in a timely manner. Uh, because Lord, you want us to be a holy people. And Lord, I just pray that, again, you would be with us in our time together as we look at your word, that you would be our teacher, that Lord, uh, we just invite Jesus to be close and the Holy Spirit to be um, our guide uh, in this time together. Um, yeah, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Chuck Swindoll tells a story I love in his book, Growing Deep in the Christian Life. Uh, he writes about a man who went to a fast food restaurant and he bought two fried chicken dinners, one for himself and, and one for his date late one afternoon. <clears throat> well, the attendant at the restaurant, however, just there was a mix-up. And the attendant accidentally gave the two customers their, the daily bank deposit of the restaurant. Uh, so this couple got a bag of money instead of fried chicken. Well, after driving to their picnic site, the couple sat down to enjoy their meal and they opened up their bag and discovered $8,000 in cash. Well, luckily, the man and his date quickly gathered everything up, got back in their car, and drove to the restaurant. And you can imagine by then the manager was frantic, right? Uh, when they arrived, the man got out, he walked in, he returned the cash and became an instant hero. The manager was like just thrilled. He's like, you know what? I'm going to call the local newspaper. I'm going to get, you know, you and your wife's picture on the front page of the local newspaper. You're going to be one of, you're going to be a hero. You're one of the most honest men I've ever met. But it was then the man got just slightly uncomfortable. I said, no, no, you don't have to. No, no. And the guy insisted, no, front page of the newspaper. And then the man listened, <laughs> went to the manager, leaned in a little closer and whispered. He says, please don't. You see, the woman that I'm with isn't actually my wife. She's actually somebody else's wife. Um, and that just made it super awkward, didn't it? Uh, but when you hear a story like that, I mean, you got to ask, what's that guy thinking? But, I mean, how, how can someone be both so honest and so deceptive at the same time? How can someone be doing such a good thing on the one hand and yet have such corrupt motives on the other? How does someone live with such a divided heart? But you know, the reality of our world is that many things just, they aren't what they appear to be. Even the actions of someone who seems to be doing good could have a darker motive behind it. And even the church is not immune to this. 
You know, even when it comes to serving God, many people who look good on the surface have some rotten attitudes underneath. And that's exactly what we see in our passage uh, this morning as we look at Ananias and Sapphira. But first we begin with sort of a brief introduction, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse 32. It says in verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, uh, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now as we come to that passage, remember what's happened. The church just had its first taste of persecution for proclaiming the name of Jesus. But they respond by getting together of one accord and praying. They pray for more, even more boldness. And here we see some of the results of that prayer. Uh, there's unity, there's generosity, there's compassion, there's caring. And there's even, as verse 33 tells us, there's great power and great grace among the people. I mean, good things are happening, lives are being changed. And we're told one life in particular shined very brightly, a guy named Joseph. Uh, and Joseph, he was the kind of guy you'd love to have in any church. Everybody wants someone like Joseph in their church. He was selfless, loved to help, loved to support others, loved to encourage people. It even earned him a name, nickname Barnabas, uh, which basically they called him, he was Mr. Encouragement. That's what it means. Hey, Mr. Encouragement, how you doing? Uh, Barnabas was an amazing man. In fact, he's actually mentioned 24 other times in the book of Acts and another five times in the letters of the New Testament. Um, Barnabas was the kind of believer you, you could hold up as an example to others. So much so that there were actually two people in the church who said, we'd like to be an example like that too. They really wanted to be an example just like him. As we see in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. So they're kind of following in Joseph's footsteps or Barnabas' footsteps. And it seems like a pretty good start. I mean, more generosity is a good thing, but it doesn't take long to begin to see there's going to be a problem. As we go into verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now keep in mind here uh, that Ananias and Sapphira were under no compulsion to even give even a portion or a part of the proceeds of that sale to the church. Uh, Peter even says as much in verses 3 and 4. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And you know, as I was reflecting on those words this week, I guess I found it kind of rather convicting that the first sort of recorded sin that we find within the church, um, recorded in the book of Acts, comes, comes from somebody wanting to hold something back from God. Um, and it would be easy to point fingers at Ananias and Sapphira and say they should have known better, it's their fault, that kind of things. But I guess this week I realized just how often we do the same things in our lives. 
Sometimes practically every day. We, we hold back. We hold back from God. We, we come to God saying, God, you know, I appreciate so much what you've done for me. I want, I'm going to give you my whole life. I'm going to give you my everything. I'm going to be sold out for you. You can have it all. As long as I can still keep this one little habit that, that I really kind of enjoy. Or, or you know, that, that one favorite sin that I'm not going to tell anybody about. But I'm just going to keep that as well, if that's okay with you. You know, Lord, you can have it all in my life. Except this, because I'm not really quite willing to give this up yet. And we hold something back from God. And maybe it's our time. God, you know, I I love to serve you, but, you know, I'm just so busy with these other things, so I'm going to give you everything but that. Or maybe it's our money. God, you know, I promised I was going to tithe this month, but we really want to make this shiny new purchase, and it just, you know, to impress our neighbors, and it's just not going to work financially. Or maybe it's our future, you know, God, you know, I'd love to be anything you want me to be, except the following things, which would just, you know, missionary in Africa, number one, all those things. Those really don't work. Or maybe it's simply our hearts. Lord, I'd love to give you all of my heart. But Lord, there's just other things that my heart's tied up with that I just, I'm not ready to let go of. And so maybe we offer God 80% of our lives. Maybe we offer him 90%. Maybe it's 95% of our lives. God, you can have this much. But whatever that number, so often we still hold something back. We keep something back from God. That's what's happening here. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to hold something back from God. They just weren't ready to let it all go. But as sad and tragic as that was, that wasn't their only problem. Uh, Because they also tried to lie about that. Uh, And I think it's important to see that they were trying to be intentionally deceptive about their motives. They were were trying to sort of make it look like this was the whole thing, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, So this is not just a couple of believers who who were making an honest mistake. Um, There's an intentionality about their lies here. Uh, And I think that's good because, I mean, if God punished every believer who wasn't sort of practically perfect in every way, in the same way he punished these two, there wouldn't be much church left. Uh, But Ananias, again, and Sapphira, they intentionally lied. They lied to the apostles, they lied to God, in a way they probably even lied to themselves. Um, So instead of doing the sold-out thing, they looked for a shortcut to being faithful. I actually really liked how one author put it, that Ananias and Sapphira decided they wanted a spiritual reputation like Barnabas, but they didn't want to pay retail. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Um, so instead, they just decided, you know what, let's just fake it. Let's just pretend uh, that we kind of are doing what we're doing. Uh, and I actually have a book on my shelf in my office by a man named Dan Schaefer called Faking Church. And that's just what he talks about. Uh, he writes in that book, you aren't everything you're pretending to be and you know it. Your godliness is often for public consumption only. Your patience can be plastic. Your public prayers are eloquent. Your private are often non-existent or anemic. But don't take it personally, because you're not the only one. Because I'm another. I pretend to be the perfect husband. I pretend to be the perfect parent. I pretend to not be angry when I really am. I pretend not to be offended when I'm furious. I pretend that all of my problems have been solved. I pretend to be holy when my mind and heart are not. I pretend I'm not worried when I am racked by anxiety. 
I pretend to be happy when I'm miserable. I pretend to be confident when I'm confused. I pretend to forgive when I really haven't. And I'm not always pretending. I don't want to give that impression, he says, but I pretend a lot of the time. And I do this in front of others to leave a better impression of my Christian faith and my God. And you can call that what you want. You can call it pretending. You can call it faking it. You can call it going through the motions or phoning it in or just sort of playing church. But Jesus had a word for that too. And his word was hypocrite. Um, And do you know what the word hypocrite really means? Hypocrite is the Greek word uh, for an actor in a play. And that's really what this is about. It's, it's people who want to look holy, they want to look committed, they want to look faithful, but all of that's just an act because they aren't really what they appear to be. They want to be seen as spiritual, but they're really superficial. They want a reputation for holiness, but their holiness is full of sinful holes. They want to appear to sort of have their lives all together. But it's not true integrity, it's just appearances. And I think we need to be so careful with this, especially today, because with things like Facebook and Instagram and other social media, we have, we have more pressure than ever to make our lives appear, you know, perfect for others. And in our world and even in our churches, we sometimes feel that pressure to appear perfect, to appear like we're not having troubles, to appear like we just have it all together. We don't really want to let people see our flaws or shortcomings. So we show up on Sundays and we smile and, you know, we have nice shirts and, you know, but there's a deep denial about the rebellious realities of our hearts sometimes. And we sit in the pews like Ken and Barbie Christian, sort of more plastic people than we are concerned about really sort of being genuine and real with each other. And I do that because sometimes we think, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, we're not committing adultery. It's not robbing a bank. We're not killing anyone by doing it. So what's the deal? Why, why not just fake it? What, what's the real harm with a few white lies in this area? I mean, who's ever going to know? Well, look at chapter four of, or verse 4 of chapter 5. As Peter says, you've not lied to man, but to God. That's who's going to know. You can fool everyone else, but you will never fool God. And as for what's the harm in just faking it? Well, let's begin reading in verse 5 of chapter 5. It says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And when you hear those words, what do you think? For me, being really honest, I can't help but think, that sounds harsh, like just a little bit. Like the, like the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime there. Because again, if God, I know if God responded that way to everyone who ever told a lie or faked it in church, 
there would not be a lot of us left, myself included. It just, you know, I feel like even today I'm dodging a bullet. Like, you just never, you never know. God doesn't always judge people like this. So I wonder why God responded to Ananias' and Sapphira's actions here so severely. I wonder why this incidence was deemed a capital offense. After all, I mean, you could make the case, weren't they, just, weren't they doing good and even giving a portion of that money to the church? The amount that they were giving was probably likely, you know, quite a bit more than others in the church could ever possibly give. Shouldn't God have been happy that they at least gave something? Give them at least partial credit instead of a funeral. And think too about the church's reputation, the rumors. I mean, can you imagine the headlines the next day in the Jerusalem papers? You know, local pastor kills church member. Yes. Pharisees say, we told you those guys were dangerous. Like, well, like it would be a tough reputation to overcome. So why would God risk it? Why did God strike these people dead? Well, let me tell you why. It comes down to this. God is deadly serious about the holiness of his people. That's the lesson. And when Ananias and Sapphira purposed in their heart beforehand to withhold some of the money and to lie about it, it was an attack on the holiness of God's church. And God's not mad because they didn't give enough money. He's mad because they lied about it. Because they were being deceptive. And that's a sin. And the wages of sin is death. And please understand that as you read this passage. This is not an injustice on God's part. This is the very definition of what justice for sin looks like. And sometimes we can get so used to expecting grace that we forget God's call to be a holy people. And holiness is something that God is not willing to compromise about. Holiness is not a place where God you know, says, oh, you know what, take a little bit of wiggle room uh, when you're looking for holiness. No. He calls us to be holy. Let me read a few verses for you. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Ephesians 5, verse 3, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. 2 Timothy 1, 9, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Colossians 5, verse 6, or 3, 3 verses 5 and 6, says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And even Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you know, I could go on. Those are, that's just a scratching the surface of the verses talking about God's desire for his people to be here. But that's the lesson that's clear. Holiness is God's call and God's desire for his church. And we see that desire for holiness in these verses playing out. 
We see God's judgment on sin. We see the wrath of God against wrongdoing. But maybe you're going to ask, well, where's the grace? Because yes, the Bible tells us that God is a holy God. But it also tells us that God is a God of love. So reading these verses, well, where is that love? Where is the mercy? And that leads me to something else I want you to hear and understand very clearly. Because between the perfect and unyielding and unchanging holiness of God, which cannot tolerate sin, between that holiness, on the other hand, the unending, unconditional, unfathomable love of God, love even for sinners, between that holiness and that love, right there in the middle of those two things, we find Jesus. Because he's the bridge. My prophet seminary used to say something like this. He said, what the holiness of God required, the love of God provided in Jesus. We were sinners separated from God's holiness. Outcasts, facing an eternal death in hell. But Jesus' death on the cross paid for those sins, offered us forgiveness, and allowed us to enter into the family of God. That's grace. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.12 For he made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's grace. That's mercy. That is the gospel. That is the hope of our salvation. salvation. And Jesus is both the holiness and the grace of God on full display. And we need to see both of those things being present, even in this passage. But that doesn't really answer the question. Why did God judge this case so harshly? Well, I think there's something else going on here. Because this is early days in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, early days for the church. And I really think we need to see this passage as being a pivotal moment in the direction that the early church could have headed. And I say that because remember that most people in this church were Jewish. And for most Jewish people in that time, when they thought about what it meant to please God, they probably thought about the Pharisees. And as we know, the Pharisees were all about the show. And Jesus didn't really have a lot of kind things to say about the Pharisees. I mean, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, wicked generation, he called them hypocrites. They loved the spotlight. They embraced their social standing. They loved to be seen by men doing all of the right things. But when Jesus looked at them, he said, you know what, your hearts are far from God. So the question I think that's facing us here in this passage is, is really the question the church is facing in this passage is, what direction are we going to go? Would Christianity now become a faith that was more sort of concerned with sort of keeping up appearances rather than faithfully following Christ? Was, was Christianity basically be just going to become sort of a version of, a new version of Phariseeism? I don't know if that's a word. Because if the church was going to go in that direction... Let's be honest, Ananias and Sapphira would have been perfect leadership candidates in a church like that. People who 
could look like they had it all together. In a church of fake people, those who can fake it best will rise to the top. But I think what we see here is God saying no. No. That's not what the church is going to be. And God says, I'm going to put a stop to that kind of thinking once and for all right now. Church is not going to be a place of performance. It is not going to be a place where you can just look good on the outside. Instead, the church is going to be a place full of people who are honest. People who can admit their needs. People who are hurting, who are broken, who have failed, who have suffered, who have disappointed, and yet still can find a home among the body of Christ because of the grace of Christ. So when God looks down upon Ananias and Sapphira standing before the church, he makes his will on this point absolutely clear. We're not going to fake it. And the result of all of that is verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. We're told that fear seized this church. It came upon this church. But I don't want you to read that and think that this, of this fear is terror. It wasn't like people walking into church. Like, it's, like, it's, it's not that kind of fear. It's not terror. No, this fear is, is a reverence for God. It's, it's a respect. It's living our lives acknowledging God's holiness and his greatness and his sovereignty and understanding that all of us will one day be called to give an account of our lives before his holy throne. It's living with that awareness. And I think that in our lives, there needs to be a clear connection between the fear of God and living a a life of holiness to God. In many ways, the fear of God is what spurs us to be holy people. Warren Wiersbe even says in his commentary on the book of Acts, he says, we have moved from great power and great grace to now great fear. And he says, all of those three need to be present in the church. In fact, in verse 11 of chapter 5, that's the first time in the book of Acts the word church is actually used. And maybe that's because a true church can only exist when there is genuine fear of God, reverence for his holiness. So as we close, let me just run through four quick applications that I think we could be making in our lives as we reflect on the truth of this passage. These are four things that can help us all I hope, escape the trap of hypocrisy in order to help us live a holy life. Uh, The first thing I would encourage you to do is let God search your heart. Um, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just allow God to point out areas in your life where you may be holding back. Uh, Any areas in your life where, you know, there may be wrongs, there may be sins. Let God search your heart and your motives and your life and let him just speak to you about the state of your heart. Is there a sin that's unconfessed? Is there an addiction that needs to be addressed? Is there a habit that needs to be stopped? Is there, there an area of your life where you're holding back from God's control? And just let him search you and let him reveal those things to you. So you can make it right, which is step two. Uh, second step, second thing we can do is repent. Um, confess those areas in your life that you have let slip. Stop pretending. Admit your need. Admit you're not perfect. Admit your selfishness. 
and just be broken by sin in your life. Weep over it. Get offended by it. And then stop doing it and put it behind you. You know, repentance is more than just feeling sorry for your sin. It is taking action to stop committing those sins as well. So repent, admit your need, confess your sin, and make change in your life. The third thing I think we need to do is be accountable. Um, There is a moment in this passage when Peter asks a very hard question to Sapphira. He says, tell me the truth. And it was really her opportunity to get back on track. And we need all of us, we all need people in our lives like that. People who will ask us hard questions. People who we have given permission to in our lives to press us and to discipline us and to refine us. Find a person you trust and let them ask you hard questions about how you're, holding, uh, how you're living your life. Hard questions about areas where you struggle and let them hold you accountable because that's a, an amazing help when it comes to living lives of holiness. Find someone to be accountable to. And then finally, last thing I would say is live for Christ. Um, I titled this sermon a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the title of this sermon is Death and Holiness. Just another day in the church. Because as dramatic as these events with Ananias and Sapphira are when we read them, I think what we need to realize is there's always going to be a death in the church. Because a person will either choose to live for themselves and then die in their sin, or they will learn to live for Christ. And they will die to themselves. And that's something that happens every day as we seek to live for Jesus. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3, 3, for you have died. And your life is hidden in Christ, in, with Christ in God. Now, even Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, and Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We are to die to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. So don't live to impress others. Don't try to put on a show for anyone else. You have only one person to please, one person you need to live for, and that person is Jesus. Remember that commitment. And that's a choice you have to make. A choice you make every day as you live for Christ. And nobody's going to make that choice for you. No one's going to force you to be obedient to God. No one is going to you know, make you get serious about your faith. It's a choice that always is in your hands. It's always yours. And yet, you know, I continue to be convinced that many Christians today are living unfulfilled, empty lives simply because they continue to compromise their faith by the way they live. They're holding something back. Or they're just trying to put on a show for others. Or they're just not being honest about the sin in their life. And they refuse to deal with it. And I think we do that because it really is easier to fake it than it is to be truly faithful. But this morning, if you're here and you know that you've been living a life of compromise, if you know you've become too familiar with the world, if you know that today 
you've not been doing something in your life that is, or you're doing something that's not pleasing to God, there's no better way for you to get back on track than to repent. Ask God for forgiveness and start living for Christ once again. Because no matter where you are or what you've done, it's never too late to come back to God and continue that journey towards holiness in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, today, Lord, it's a tough passage. And I think it's a tough passage because we see ourselves um, and the people of Ananias and Sapphira. And we know that by the grace of God, except by the grace of God, that's where we're standing too. And Lord, as we look at those words, uh, Lord, we want to remember your call to holiness, that you have called us to be holy just as you're holy, and that your church is to be a church full of holy people. And Lord, it's our desire to live lives of purity. It's our desire to, to put away um, you know, sin in our lives, to, to cast off that old sinful nature, to get rid of you know, all of those old ways in which we used to live so that we can fully live for you holding nothing back. And Lord, again, this is another passage that I think is also a reminder of our grace that we have received. Um, because when it comes to holiness, Lord, we know all of us fall short. All of us make mistakes. When it comes to, you know, just lying about who we are and faking it in church, Lord, we all wear masks. And we all just pretend to be perfect at some times, but we're just faking it. We're all hypocrites now and then. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest about that. That Lord, we would just let down our guards. That we would be genuine and honest and about our hurts and our flaws and Lord, even our sins with one another. That we would stop pretending. And yet, Lord, even as we do, so our, Lord, uh, we know that your mercy is available through us. Lord, that you are patient with us and that Lord, through Christ, you continue to offer us forgiveness and grace because of Jesus and because Jesus is where your holiness and your grace meet. And Lord, we pray that as your people that that's where we would live. Uh, we would live with Jesus always before us in our lives, seeking holiness and seeking grace in all things. And that, Lord, every day we would make that choice to die to ourselves so that we can live for you. Lord, it's been a hard passage, but Lord, I thank you for the truth that we have heard this morning. I pray that you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.